And now, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is where we'll be. And while you're finding 2 Corinthians 4, found some interesting information about American money, about currency. It's, it's been the target of countless counterfeiting operations because there's a lot of it. And so there, there are counterfeiters who try to make fake money. Because of the robust nature of our economy, because of the vast amounts of currency in circulation, counterfeiting paper money is a huge problem in our nation. Counterfeit money devalues real currency. It delegitimizes a country's government. In fact, the founding fathers of the United States understood the importance of a stable and reliable currency. And in 1788, they ratified the Article 1, Section 8, Paragraph 6 of the Constitution that says, Congress shall have power to provide for the punishment of counterfeiting the securities and current coin of the United States. Well, over time, more and more security measures have had to be added to our paper money to make it more difficult to counterfeit. In money printed in the last 20 years or so, there are now at least five security measures on every bill that's $5 or higher, which are difficult or almost impossible to replicate. One of these is the security thread, which runs from the top to the bottom on different bills. The security thread is in a different place on every denomination to prevent counterfeiters from just bleaching the money and printing larger uh, denominations on it. And so knowing the location of the security thread and knowing what each security thread is supposed to say on it, there's different words, is a helpful security measure. But in addition to knowing the location and the writing on the security thread, if you hold it up to a black light, the security thread on an authentic bill will glow either blue, orange, green, yellow, or pink depending on the denomination of the bill. That's just the first security measure. There are others, including watermarks, color-shifting ink, microprinting, and three-dimensional features on certain parts of the bill. But if just one of those security measures is wrong or not correct, the whole bill is useless. It's a fake. It's not said to be said, well, it's 80% good. This is a $4 bill now. Don't say that. It's completely worthless. And it incurs the wrath of the Treasury Department for attempting to use it. Just one key component missing proves that the whole thing is faked. And in exactly the same way, while the gospel of Jesus Christ has many components to it, many of which to some degree can be counterfeited, there's one key component which Satan very cleverly and carefully excludes from any false version of Christianity, any fabricated variety on the gospel. Without this component, the false version of the gospel becomes a wicked snare to entrap the unsuspecting. Without this component, Satan can encourage unbelievers to be as religious as they want. As a matter of fact, without this component, the more religious you are, the better. Because religiosity just masks the fact that this key component is missing from all your religious activities. The more ritualism that occurs without this component, the more complex religious exercises that occur without this component, the more religious attire and robes and funny-looking hats and cathedrals and religious hierarchies, the more all of that occurs, this is all the better because it gives the impression of truth. It gives the impression of spiritual answers. But the key component is left out. 
The counterfeit is nearly perfect and yet on the whole is completely false because it's worthless without that key component. Now, as we begin the last few messages in our series, Satan and his schemes, today I want to talk to you about Satan versus the gospel and how he carefully leaves out this one key component. Now, rest assured, the gospel wins this battle, but he does leave this out. Now, to get our thoughts going, I want to start with you today in 2 Corinthians 4 as our beginning point. Again, we're not going verse by verse through a book as we normally do. We're taking a topical look at Satan and his schemes But here in 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul is explaining the integrity of his gospel ministry. But some won't understand the gospel. They won't listen. They won't hear. It's not for lack of effort on Paul's part, he says here. Rather, Satan has rendered the sinner unable to understand with their natural minds. They can't do it. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So there's a veiling, there's a blindness, there's a deafness to the gospel. Now, the human hearers of the gospel are definitely culpable, definitely responsible. They're responsible for their own failure to believe. But there's a a behind-the-scenes influence to the rejection of Christ. Something going on that we can't see. Satan has the power to besiege the human mind, to incite them against God, and to incite them now in favor of evil and wickedness. And that's the battleground. The mind is the chief battleground. It is the place of war for Satan because if he wins the mind, he wins the soul. He does all in his power to prevent humans from being enlightened by the knowledge of Christ. Let me put it this way. The mind blinded by Satan can't think straight spiritually and worse, doesn't know that it can't think straight. At the end of the previous chapter, in fact, Paul is explaining that Israel as a nation has been darkened in their understanding of the gospel. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 3, verse 14. But their minds were hardened For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. To come to salvation from sin, you must see Christ. That's why they're not. They're not seeing Christ. He is the image of God, and he is the mediator of salvation. In Christ, we see God. We see God as the creator and the redeemer, the merciful and the loving God. We see that God is determined to rescue people from the dominion and the bondage of sin and to rescue them from wickedness. And how does that happen? Well, it happens through the cross, of course. But to the unbeliever, there's irony, there's shame, there's degradation, there's, can I put it this way, embarrassment at the cross. Christ's death on the cross reveals God's love the most clearly, but it it befuddles people. It repels them as foolishness because how could glory come from a bloody cross? They certainly can't see how weakness and humiliation go with power and glory. How can those two possibly go together? But 2 Corinthians 13, 4 says, He was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. The weakness and the degradation of the cross is the way to the power and the glory of God. And the unbeliever can't see that. 
It's embarrassing to them. It's weird to them. That makes no sense to them. So how has Satan blinded the minds of the unbeliever? How has he defeated them before they ever knew that they were in a war? The way he's blinded them is by giving inadequate substitutes for the missing key component of the gospel. And if in case you're wondering, I haven't told you what it is yet. He blinds them by giving inadequate substitutes for this missing key component of the gospel. And that's what I'd like to speak to you about this morning. There are four inadequate substitutes for the missing key component of the gospel. Now, to understand this, especially the first one, we'll need to return all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We've been there a few times in this series. We need to go visit Eve once again. At the moment, she encounters Satan, the serpent of old. So turn with me all the way back to the other end of your Bible, to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3. We come back now to the Garden of Eden. We come back to visit with Eve. Now, just to be very clear, Eve is in heaven right now. She has trusted God to forgive her of her sin. We know this because after she sinned, after Adam sinned as well, God promised a coming Savior to them. And he even clothed them in the temporary sacrifices of animals to point the way to a future permanent forgiveness. And we see in the life of Eve somebody who was faithful. Yes, she fell into sin, but she is in heaven right now. So lest you think we're picking on Eve, she is a believer. The first inadequate substitute for the missing key component of the gospel, the promise of immortality. The promise of immortality is an inadequate substitute. And just to remind us of the setting here, let me read to you the first six verses of Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, that is to Eve, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now we have to consider the corrupt, the spoiled nature of the relationship that now exists between God and humanity. It is not what it once was before this moment. And this spoiled relationship is due to the introduction of satanic theology, of false teaching, right here in the Garden of Eden. Satan made two declarations to Eve. And these two declarations have been part and parcel of all the world's false religious creeds and belief systems all throughout human history. Here they are. The first declaration, you will not surely die. In verse 4, he declares you will not surely die. This is a a complete denial of God's promise from Genesis 2.17, you shall surely die on the day that they would eat of the forbidden fruit. Now, there's a couple of possibilities here. The one we tend to generally default to and accept immediately is that Satan simply lied to trick Eve into believing something that's not true and, and laughed Um, diabolically when he saw that now Eve would die. There's a different 
And I believe a better option, though. I believe the better option is that Satan believed he could shield humanity from the God-appointed judgment. That maybe he could even save their lives. Of course, that would be to use, use their lives for his own wicked purposes to stand against God. That he would attempt to protect mankind from the wrath of God in exchange for what? In exchange for total loyalty. Now, how is that a better option? It's a better option because it's a very reasonable assumption because that's exactly what Satan offered to Jesus at the temptation in Matthew 4. You can have the world without dying. You can have it all without your death. And remember this, another good reason here, Satan wanted everything that God has. God had a kingdom of humanity on earth, humanity that was originally designed to serve God and live forever on earth and that's what satan wanted he wanted that kingdom it does him no good to simply trick mankind into death that's not his goal his goal was to have everything that god has but in any case whether satan was simply fooling eve to her own demise or actually believing that he could preserve through his power despite god's promise In either case, Satan is trying to direct mankind through Eve into believing in their own immortality. You shall not die. It's the first declaration he makes. It's false. He makes a second declaration in this satanic theology. You will be like God. You will be like God. He says this in verse 5. This is very diabolical. This is very tricky because this is a perversion of something that's true. It's a twisting of something that is real. The real truth is Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Being conformed to the image of Christ comes through repentance of sin, through the saving faith that's given to us by God. But Satan was promising Eve, you can be like God by disobeying God. By circumventing service and worship to God, which is exactly what Satan himself was doing, circumventing that. Now the believer in Christ will be transformed to be like God in the sense that we'll be like Christ, perfect human beings. 1 John 3, 2 says, when he appears, we shall be like him. Philippians 3.21 says that Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. But Satan is saying, you can have all that without God. And so really what we have here are two different methods that are proposed for the immortality of mankind. One method is of God and the other is of Satan. And of course, Satan's method is going to fail. Satan's method proposes to uplift humanity to provide eternal life or at least fool us into thinking that's happening without dealing with sin without dealing with a holy god how about we leave god out and you just live forever anyway that was essentially what satan was trying to fool even the believing and so the first inadequate substitute for the missing key component of the gospel is the promise of immortality There's a second inadequate substitute. We'll call this the power of self-help. The power of self-help. Every human being has a relationship to his creator, to God. We instinctively know that we're created by God. Little children, by the way, have to be taught very carefully to stop believing in God. No atheists are born that way. 
But Romans 1, 20 and 21, you don't have to turn there. You may just listen. It says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, humanity is clearly perceived. What Paul says is the eternal power, the divine nature of God. But humanity has now exchanged that knowledge for futile thinking, foolish hearts that are now darkened into absolute utter ignorance. And so the only option then is for humanity to assume a hopeless position. And what is that position? It's independence concerning God. Instead of looking to God for help, humanity has chosen to grope blindly in the dark. How? Through self-improvement, through self-righteousness, through self-help, through education, through any false moral system such as socialism and liberalism. Those are not political systems. Those are false moral systems. Anything and everything possible to maintain the so-called independence from God. There's an abject avoidance of crying out to ask for God's help to be uplifted from our sinful human condition. And in fact, we deny the human condition of sin by assuming this posture of self-righteous belief systems by which we may convince ourselves that we are inherently good. Now, here's the irony. Through our own efforts, lost humanity is still trying to attain to a divine standard. They say there is no God, and yet they're trying to be like him. They can't help it. Still looking to something divine, but in our own hopeless power. Humanity uses secular psychology, sociology, liberal ideology, which, all of which presents itself as the most compassionate and, and, and kind, even though it's oppressive and it's wicked because it rails against the laws of God. Now, this doesn't mean, by the way, that people don't claim some level of positive relationship with God. And in fact, part of being self-righteous may be to present a very religious persona. But listen carefully. There's a big difference between a person asking God to save him and a person asking God to help him save himself. Big difference. There's a vast disparity between God redeem me from my sins and God help me with my self-styled redemption through my own good works. There's a vast difference. And in fact, religious actions, claims of some sort of relationship with God, don't place any dependence on salvation into the hands of God. In fact, it, it does just the opposite. What it really does is sarcastically and insultingly and disrespectfully ask God to sanction and to improve my own self-righteous good works. God, would you put your stamp of approval on these good things that I do, which, by the way, Isaiah 64 says are disgusting before you, but we won't talk about that right now. But the fact is, those self-righteous good works offend God because good works can't be done by ultimately wicked people any more than we would soften our hearts toward a mass murderer because he makes really good pancakes for breakfast. That makes no sense. Man's self-styled dependence and, or position toward God, rather, is total independence. And yeah, I'll give a nod to God. I'll, I'll be the football player that scores a touchdown and does this. I'll say, mm, God helped me do this. I'll do that. 
Now, here's the irony. Humanity wants to be independent of God. We can't be independent of God even in material basic things. We're, we're unable to. Hebrews 1.3 says that the Lord Jesus Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. In other words, we have air, food, water, an environment, and earth. We have these basic things. We don't have any control over that. And yet humanity says, well, even though I don't have control over basic things like food, water, and air, I can control the invisible spirit realm. I can control the realm of sin and righteousness. And in fact, someday when I stand before God, I will present to him my resume. I'll tell him how wonderful I've been. And he's going to go, you know, I never saw it before, but now I see it. Absolutely, I can do that. By the way, I need some water. Oh, thank you, God, for the water I couldn't provide. It's ridiculous. It's totally hopeless. Why is that? Because God demands a quality which no human being can give to him, and that is complete sinless righteousness, having never once violated God's holy commands. That's what he demands. And you might say, well, that's unreasonable. Actually, it's not. It's very reasonable. God is holy. He cannot He will not abide with sin. He certainly is not going to invite uncleansed sinners to spend eternity with him when there is an unyet paid sin debt. But God also provides his grace to give that which he demands. In other words, God's demand is righteous perfection. He knows we can't do it, so he provides that as a gift. You cannot be righteously perfect, but I will give it to you. God has never mocked us. He never has. He's never mocked his people. He's never mocked humanity by demanding righteousness and holiness while giving us no option except to provide it for ourselves when he knows perfectly well that we can't. He's never mocked us that way. And even if we thought we could, we wouldn't anyway. Romans 3 says no one seeks after God. Not, real, not really, not in reality. You may, give the, you may give the appearance of it. We have a presidential candidate who when the, it suits him, he claims some religious affiliation. Frankly, both of them do that. But God doesn't mock us. True salvation is a gift from God. It is a work from God. It is initiated by God, completed by God. It's a finished work. God makes no demands on us to finish our own work of salvation or to somehow make installment payments of good works. Instead, those who are saved from our sins serve the Lord in our high and lofty service because we're already saved, because we're already completed in God. We could not help ourselves. We had no way to. It's a lie. These inadequate substitutes for the missing key component of the gospel, the the promise of immortality, the power of self-help. There's a third inadequate substitute for the missing key component of the gospel, and that is we'll call the pride of superiority. The pride of superiority. Now, we've looked a couple of times at the I will statements of Satan in Isaiah 14. You don't have to turn there. just going to read them to you. Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 13 God says to Satan, you have said in your heart, and now this is Satan speaking in his heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mounts of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. The willful statements of superiority that I will be like God. 
And instead of just gladly receiving from God, you realize that Satan was the most blessed of all the angels. He was the most glorious. He's the only angel in all of the Bible to whom poetry is written because of his splendor and his magnificence. And instead of receiving that from God, Satan determined to be self-sufficient and he's blinded the minds of the unbeliever in the same way to believe themselves to be superior. You ever share the gospel with an unbeliever who looks at you with a smug grin like you're the idiot? That superiority is from Satan. Satan has made something which is kind and reasonable and gracious, which is God's offer of free salvation through grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. He's made that seem unkind and unreasonable and rude as if... How dare God ask that I bend my knee in humility and confession to my hopeless estate and sinful nature? Doesn't he know how good I am? Just in the last week, you've probably seen commentators and, and political figures in, in the political structures telling us how wonderful they are and all the good things they do. Instead, The unbeliever is given by Satan a sense of superiority, a sense of independence from God, and then a lifetime of proving that he's inherently good, that he measures up. And and of course, no one can measure up to God's standard, so we make up our own standard, which coincidentally coincidentally fits exactly how we live. And then we say, look, I measure up to the standard that I just made for myself. That is to say, I will redeem myself. We make our own rules for salvation. We see that we have met our own rules and we declare ourselves redeemed. This is a very simple choice. Is it, I will proclaim my own righteousness and I build my own character or I will gratefully receive a bestowed righteousness and a given character by the fruit of the Spirit of God? Is it, I will save myself or I will submit to be saved by God? Is it, I will conform to what I believe to be right and true, or I will be transformed by the power of God into the image of Christ? Is it, I will live a life of sincere effort to be moral, to be good, or is it, I will receive the sacrifice of Christ for all my sins because I cannot be moral, I cannot be good. And Romans 3 says I'm not. Or is it, I will improve my own nature, or I will partake of the divine nature and become a child of God, by God's power, through the gracious gift of Jesus Christ. The first choice in all of those scenarios gives glory to one person, and that is to me. And the second choice in those scenarios gives glory to God alone, and therefore demands faith, demands dependence upon God, demands humility, demands humiliation. And all goes to God who alone is worthy to be praised and have glory for salvation. You cannot be superior and come to God. Those two cannot exist together. There's one more inadequate substitute for the missing key component of the gospel. We have the promise of immortality, the power of self-help, the pride of superiority. And finally, and this is going to surprise you, an inadequate substitute, the person of Christ. The person of Christ. If we close in prayer now, you will call me a heretic. So just listen. The person of Christ is not seen as offensive. He was a good teacher. He was a wonderful example. Oh, how sacrificial he was. He was so selfless. He was humble. He was so wise. 
the world, generally speaking, isn't offended by the person of Christ, but it's a completely different story when it comes to the work of Christ on the cross. The cross is offensive because it proclaims I cannot redeem myself. The cross is offensive because it shouts that my sin is so bad that it's worthy of death and eternal damnation. The cross is offensive because it declares that I have a need for God to do something I cannot do for myself. Philippians 3.18 speaks of enemies of the cross. 2 Peter 2 speaks of false teachers who deny the master who bought them. Remember that phrase. The, The denial is against the purchasing work of Christ, not his person or his character. And we see unbelievers self-righteously appeal to the example of Jesus, to the teaching of Jesus, to justify their own self-righteous, wicked actions. We saw this on TV this week. Self-proclaimed religious leaders using the so-called example of Jesus to further their wicked agenda. It goes something like this. Jesus said, oh, you have to put the big fake smile on. Jesus said to love your neighbor. And when my neighbor doesn't make as much money as others do, then I can love my neighbor by taking money from others to give to my less wealthy neighbor because Jesus said, love your neighbor. Or, big smile, God is love. And since God is love, we should make certain to express that love to all people by allowing them to do whatever feels right to them because that's the standard, whatever feels right. In fact, I really hate people who don't want to love everyone that way, but it's a good hate (laughs) because I'm right. It happens all the time. And sadly, it happens in pulpits. Many will claim to be Christians because they like Jesus. Listen carefully. They might be devoted to the Lord who taught them, but they are insulted by the Lord who bought them. You cannot separate the person and work of Christ. And this self-righteousness tickles the fancy of sinful mankind. People love anything to make them feel good, make them feel righteous, make them feel worthy, which of course means that they have to have hatred and disgust with any who disagree with them because that threatens their self-styled means of lifting themselves up, of redeeming themselves, so to speak. Those who preach tolerance are the most intolerant people on earth. They devalue the gospel by convincing multitudes to be self-righteous with them. And thus, by Satan's power, are dragging countless souls into hell. This is easily seen by women around in our country by the millions, literally weeping and crying and grieved over the possibility that they may not be able to murder their own babies someday. It's a genuine grief born out of completely deceived hearts. They've omitted the need for a new nature which has the heart of God and instead of substituted seared consciences and absolute hypocrisy. The same people who cry out, believe the science when it comes to the spread of disease would never cry out, believe the science when it comes to the formation of human life in the womb. The same ones who will confront you to your face if you don't wear a surgical mask, close their eyes to the sight of a baby's limbs being ripped off and close their ears to the silent screams of a baby being murdered in the only safe place it has, his own mother's womb. Utter hypocrisy. And hell will be filled with those. The cross is offensive to the world. 
It's offensive because it means confronting, oh, I've believed everything that is evil is good and I've believed all that is good is evil. And instead of taking one minute to weep and cry and bend the knee before God and repent, they would rather burn for all eternity than take that moment of humility. The cross is offensive. Instead of a sense of their own pollution, they have a self-styled solution. Instead of being horrified at sin, they're justified in their own minds by means of good deeds. Instead of weeping at their sin, they're sweeping their sin under the carpet with their own desperate good good deeds which are completely, utterly worthless. You know, Romans 3 will be quite a surprise to the unbeliever who stands before God and believes that he will give his resume to God because Romans 3 says every mouth will be closed. There will be no case. There will be no trial. There will only be conviction. The promise of immortality, the power of self-help, the pride of superiority, the person of Christ only. They're inadequate substitutes. So what's the key component that's left out? of this counterfeit means of salvation. What's absent? What's the factor that distinguishes the fake from the real? What's the difference in Satan's plan that you shall not surely die and you shall be like God and God's plan of eternal life and being conformed to the righteousness and the image of God in Christ? What's been left out of man's satanic plan for self-redemption? It is the atonement of Jesus Christ. That's what's left out. The atonement. Oh, everything around it looks so good. I want to do good things. I want to look religious. I want to do things that seem to please God. But all without the atonement. What is the atonement? It is the substitutionary death on the cross of Jesus Christ to satiate and to appease the wrath of God against me and against my sin Atonement is the central feature of the gospel. It's the hub around which all the other aspects of the gospel revolve. And the atonement is accomplished only by the death of Christ, which is why, as we've seen in some other messages, why Satan has spent so much time and effort, first in the Old Testament, trying to keep Messiah from coming to earth, then when Jesus is born, trying to kill him, then trying to tempt him to never go to the cross, and finally trying to scare Jesus away from the cross. Because the atonement changes everything. I want to talk to you about the atonement. Because this is where where the light comes. I want to give you some key ideas to understand the atonement and how important it is. The dark clouds of Satan's deception are now swept away. And the lights come on. Here's the first key idea. We'll call it payment. Payment. Jesus explained the reason for his upcoming death. In Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a what? A ransom for many. What is this? The death of Christ was a payment for sin. It was paying a ransom. Romans six twenty three reminds us that the wages of sin is death. And that's the only price that could be paid. And to whom was your debt of sin owed? Who did Jesus pay on your behalf? It's a common misconception that Jesus died because Satan owns you. It's true that Satan owned you, but he didn't die to pay Satan off. He died to pay God off because God is the one to whom you owed that debt. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. 
Who destroys both soul and body in hell? God does. He judges rightly the unjust, the unrighteous, the unholy sinner who will pay for his own sin for all eternity because the debt will never be completed. Payment. There's a second key idea of the atonement. We'll call this release. Release. Once payment has been made, then release is possible. Isaiah 42.7 prophesied that the coming Messiah was going, quote, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. This is the theological idea of redemption, of having your soul redeemed, set free. Ephesians 1.7 reminds us, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You're released from the prison of your own sin. You've been awaiting trial for your sins. That trial would, would have happened at the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, that you've been released from waiting for that trial. You're set free. And why could you be set free? I mean, after all, God is perfectly just, and the just God will punish sin. Why could you just be released? Well, because of our third key idea, we'll call it satisfaction. Satisfaction. Since the payment for sin was made, since you've been released from the bondage of sin, under which you are awaiting the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20, this proves that God's ire, his wrath, his rightful indignation, his anger, his justice, they've all been satisfied. They've all been expended. 1 John 2, 2 uses a big word, says he is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is from the Latin word propitiare, and it means to render favorable, to make it good. You're now favorable before God. Because the wrath of God has been turned away from you and placed instead on Christ. Now, how does that work? Because God is just. In fact, Psalm 7 tells us how just God is. Beginning in verse 12, Psalm 7 says, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. It's not that God put his sword away It's not that God put down his bow. It's not that God extinguished the fiery arrows of his justice. He has swung his sword. He has pulled back the bow. He has released the fiery arrows. But Christ stepped in front of you and took it all. And as you shut your eyes waiting for the wrath of God to hit you for all of eternity, you open them to see the figure of a dead Savior bleeding because of you. The wrath of God emptied into him, satisfied, spent, satiated. There is no more drawn sword for you. There is no more fiery arrows coming from a bow. There is no eternal judgment. There is no hell for you. There's a fourth key idea in the atonement. We'll call this one cleansing. Cleansing. The atonement also provides cleansing from sin. 1 John 1.7 says that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. God told Israel his offer of forgiveness in Isaiah 1.18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like, scar- like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. 
Theologians sometimes label this cleansing expiation. Expiation simply means cleansing, washing. Now, what does this look like in the mind and the heart and the eyes of God? I'll put it to you this way. Traditionally, a bride wears white at her own wedding. It's symbolic of her sexual purity. It's symbolic of, of having saved herself exclusively for her husband. Now, imagine this. Imagine a woman who has not done so, who has been a woman of the world and given herself to many and been immoral as a lifestyle. And perhaps she's become convicted in her own heart. She knows how she's offended God how she's been impure and unholy, and as she's approaching the day of her own wedding, she's wrestling with this. And because she hears the gospel, she comes to believe that Jesus Christ has made payment for her sin, released her from the bondage of sin, awaiting the judgment of God, satisfied the wrath of God against her, and now has cleansed her of her sin and guilt. In other words, now God sees her as perfectly pure and completely forgiven. And as she wrestles through this, what color dress do I wear having done the things I've done, and yet now in Christ. You know what God would say if he would come to her on the day of her wedding? He would say, put on that beautiful white dress, my daughter, for you are cleansed. You are pure. Your sin has been sunk to the bottom of the ocean. Your sin has been flung as far as the east is from the west, and I will remember it no more. Put on the beautiful white dress. The saints in heaven, what are we said to be wearing White robes of righteousness. There's a fifth key idea in the atonement. We'll call it relationship. Relationship. God didn't provide payment, release, satisfaction, cleansing, just to have some sort of cold, formal agreement with you. You didn't just sign the contract, okay, I won't bug you and you don't bug me anymore. No. The payment and the release and satisfaction and cleansing is now provided a relationship with God because you've been reconciled to Him. Romans 5.11 says, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation is an important word theologically. It means to make things right with another. It means to exchange one thing for another. What are we exchanging? We've exchanged enmity for unity. We've exchanged wrath for relationship. There's been an exchange. In fact, the idea of reconciliation, if you're trying to remember how can I present the gospel in just a couple of sentences, reconciliation is encapsulated in the message of the gospel. It's reconciliation with God that we proclaim to others. The Apostle Paul explained this in 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, listen to this, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Later, he calls it the message of reconciliation. This is important because the false gospel, which leaves out the atonement at at Satan's behest, the false gospel leaves out the fact that you need reconciliation and instead presents God as somebody who is desperate for a relationship with you because you're so wonderful. The gospel is not, God is so enamored with you that he wants to help you in your life. If you'll just make him the center of everything, he'll always be with you and be right by your side as you selfishly use him to do the things you want. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not, God just doesn't want to have eternity without you. He just doesn't. Heaven without you wouldn't be the same. God is so delighted with you that he just wants to spend all kinds of time with you. No, no, no. 
The message of the gospel is that God is furious with you and with your sin and the fires of hell are stoked even hotter every time you, you disobey him in his holiness. You are God's enemy and God is going to treat you like one. But because of his love, which you absolutely do not deserve and God doesn't need you for anything, he is chosen while you were in your state of rebellion, to reach out through the cross of Christ to reconcile you to himself. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, it says we were reconciled to God while we were enemies of God. This wasn't you saying, God, I'd like to be friends. And he says, okay, no, you were his enemy and he reconciled you. Now, Jesus Christ has laid down his life for you so that you have a new relationship, a new standing with God. In fact, Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his what? Friends. Can you imagine that the God that you have offended since the day you could make a choice to do so now says, that one is my friend. That's phenomenal. Payment, release, satisfaction, cleansing, relationship. There's one more key idea related to Satan in particular. Conquest. Conquest. This is why Satan didn't want Jesus to go to the cross because at the cross, according to the ancient prophecy of Genesis 3.15, the head of Satan is crushed by the foot of Christ. 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10 says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now have been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, here it is, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. One of my favorite things to do as a pastor is to visit a dying saint in the hospital You know what their record is so far? All the ones I've ever visited in their exuberance and delight in what's about to happen to them, they're undefeated. I have never yet visited a saint in the hospital about to die who was afraid. And in fact, I remember praying with one dear saint and I was trying desperately to come up with, with some sort of metaphor and I, and I just said, you know, heaven's going to be like, like, kind of like Disneyland. And on her respirator, she corrects me, better. And it goes back, absolutely. 1 Corinthians 15, 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the worst that can happen to you? Die? Bring it on. Colossians 2, 15 tells us how Christ disarmed the satanic realm of the devil, how he defeated them, defeated his demons by means of the cross. Beginning back in verse 13 of Colossians 2, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, having canceled, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, those are the demons, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. Satan loses, the gospel wins. The atonement surpasses, it eclipses, it outdoes all of those insufficient substitutes. The promise of immortality, which Satan tried to give, can only be given by the Lord Jesus Christ who said in John 14, I go and prepare a place for you and I will come again and take you to myself. 
the power of self-help? It's shown to be a hopeless lie. Instead, we receive an invitation from none other than God himself. In Hebrews 4.16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to what? Help in time of need. There is no helping yourself. All your so-called good deeds are worthless. They're pointless. And you won't even have a chance to tell them to God in any way. You can't cover your own sin. Only the grace of God can. The pride of superiority, that we can somehow stand on our own self-righteousness, it can't happen. In fact, God hates self-righteousness. He hates self-inflated egos. Instead, here's the great irony of the gospel. Here it is. When we come empty of self, we're filled with Christ. When we come devoid of pride, we become God's pride and joy. When we come shaking with fear, then we can shout in triumph. When we come on our knees, he lifts up our face. Can I put it this way? When we come destroyed by our own sin, he will destroy our sin. That's the irony of the gospel. The person of Christ, as conceptualized by the unbeliever, a kind man, a good teacher, a gentle example, this false and incomplete view of Christ becomes utterly inadequate in light of the true person of Christ, Here's Jesus, Matthew 8, let the dead bury their own dead. Matthew 10, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Mark 8, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. John 8, you will die in your sin. Matthew 23, you make him as much a child of hell as yourselves. Matthew 18, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck than be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's not the Jesus that the world believes in. Jesus is kind. He is gracious. He is compassionate. With all who would receive his free gift of salvation accomplished by his work on the cross. But to those who will not, to those who will cling to the inadequate substitutes and refuse to bend to the atonement of Christ. The last words of Jesus Christ to them will be, depart from me, I never knew you. It's pretty heavy stuff. Because to the unbeliever, without somebody helping them, they'll never understand. They'll die in their sin. They'll die in their hopelessness, having lived what they thought was a righteous life, only to stand before God and have God say, your life was a waste. Yes, Satan blinds the minds of the unbeliever in his contest against the gospel of Christ. But God in his sovereignty anytime may open the mind of the unbeliever, anytime he wants. Two verses later, after the verse we began with, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation and it overwhelms any blindness, any deafness, any hardness of heart that Satan may inflict. Listen, right now, if you don't know Christ, if you're hearing this for a moment, that veil has been pulled back. For a moment, your eyes are open. For a moment, your ears can hear. What will you do? Because the curtain's already closing. The eyelids are going down. The ears are being stopped. The heart is being hardened again. You're turning into the corpse that you once were. In this moment, what will you do? Will you run to the cross? Will you run to Christ as you see him? 
and repent of your sin of following Satan. Because listen, in the battle of Satan versus the gospel, Christ's gospel will win. But only for you if you repent. Only if you repent and you ask for mercy. And if you will do that, then you can join every other victorious Christian, all of us who bless God, saying, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. And all God's people said together, Amen. Let's pray. No false gospel, Lord, will carry the Christian away. We have been sealed by the Spirit of God. We have been drawn by the Father. We have been redeemed by the Son. And so we praise you that we cannot be carried away. And yet we live in the world, Lord, where even in our own media, we just see wickedness dripping. We see those, they would shake their fist against you Ironically, while pretending to follow you, we see them being exalted and lifted up. All we can do is join the psalmists who say, Vindicate us, O God. Vindicate the holiness of your name. Lord, we pray for a man or a woman, for a boy or a girl who at this moment has seen the light of the gospel. Let the seed of the gospel be planted in good soil in their hearts. Let it spring up to life bearing fruit 30, 60, 100 times. Let them come to faith, even within the walls of this building, Lord. Perhaps there is one or two who have fooled themselves and who have now come to realize that they have set up a system of self-righteousness which was completely insufficient. They have not taken a hold of the atonement, the substitutionary work of Christ, and instead have believed the lie of Satan. Let them come now crawling to the cross, begging for mercy. And you have promised that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you do this in our midst? Would you do this with those who are listening, Lord, whether online or later? Let this be the moment that the Spirit of God opens their hearts to receive that precious gift from you, the atoning work of Christ on the cross. We thank you for our forgiveness. We thank you that our salvation is secure. We thank you that our future is secure. We thank you that as we read earlier, we will someday be among those who say that the King of glory has returned. We look forward to that day. May we be faithful in the meantime. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.